Our gospel lesson this morning comes from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. It can be found on page 1671 in your pew Bibles. John 12, 20 through 36. Jesus predicting his own death. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you've made, and we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We ask that you would help us not to um, to hear it lightly. God, we ask that you would give us attentive ears and minds, that you would give us soft hearts that are ready to receive your word today. God, that by your word and by your spirit, you would continue to change us into the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. John 12, starting in verse 20, says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to, the, to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. <clears throat> Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, Until a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Turn then to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. It can be found on page 1816 in your pew Bibles. We actually need to back up to verse 8. Can't start with the word therefore. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, 
which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have been looking the past several weeks at a person in the Old Testament who casts such a huge shadow not only over the rest of the Old Testament, but even over the New Testament, and even in our contemporary world, where if you just ask people on the street, name a Bible story, this guy's name would probably come up. And that is the person of David. Probably talk about David and Goliath. It's one of the first Bible stories to come to mind. We spoke about that one a couple weeks ago. And we've been looking at David and how he went from a shepherd to a king. Although, where we left off last week, he wasn't a king yet. So, where, we, where we've been with David so far is that he was a shepherd just out doing his own thing, shepherding the sheep as he had done day in and day out. Until a prophet of God shows up, his brothers call him in, and this prophet says to him, God has chosen you to be the next king over your people. And from there, we see this trajectory of, uh, there was still a king at that time, and yet God raises David up. Last week, we saw the current king, Saul, didn't like this. He saw what was happening. He didn't like it. He didn't want any part of this. Maybe this is what God is doing. I don't care. I'm going to try to end it anyway. And so he tries to destroy David, who then finds himself running and hiding and hiding and hiding for years while Saul tries to track him down and kill him. We saw last week that even when David had the opportunity, which happened multiple times, David had the opportunity to take Saul out instead, he didn't do it. He said, no, this is what God is doing. And, uh, and so he passes on the opportunity to advance himself, knowing that if he's going to be king, it's going to be God who makes him king. End of story. So, fast forward now. In the meantime, we're going to be looking at Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 this morning. What has happened since uh, the story from last week is that Saul has died. 
So all died in battle. And then there was a bit of a, well, now who's going to be the next king? And so there was you know, some skirmishing. David gets actually anointed as the king over the southern tribe of Judah, but not over the whole of Israel at first. But then eventually that all gets settled. He becomes the king over the whole nation of Israel. And so that's where it picks up now, is David, after going through all of this for so long, is finally seeing the result of what had been promised so many years before. And so he is the king over Israel. And now, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Says, after the king, this being David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Okay. Quick summary of what we just heard. David actually, with kind of the the right heart about him, says, you know, this doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right that I would have a nicer place than God. It doesn't seem right that I would have built up a palace around me and yet we're still keeping the ark in a tent. That doesn't seem right. Fair enough. And in fact, in 2 Chronicles 6, God actually tells Solomon that David's heart was right in this matter to want to build a house of some sort. However, what happens though is when David first says, this doesn't seem right. Maybe I should do something. The prophet there says, well, have at it. Until he hears from God. And as it turns out, God's ways are not always our ways. I don't know if you've noticed that. 
God's ways are not always our ways. And so while it made sense to David, everything that he knew at that point, hey, I should do this, then God comes to the prophet and says, go tell David, thanks but no thanks. That's not how this is going to go. And if you notice the pronouns that are used as you go through this whole passage, it's fascinating how the deal that it seems like it's going to be set up is David is going to do something for God. And then you read through it, and it's God saying, you read through that whole thing again and say, okay, what is it that David's supposed to do for God instead? Nothing. If you look at all the things that God commands David to do in this passage, it's nothing. But instead, God says, here's what I've done for you. Here's what I'm doing for you. Here's what I will do for you. And this will go on forever. And this is a very one-sided arrangement where God says, I'm going to do this for you. So thank you for your uh, desire to build a house for me. But no, instead, I'm going to build a house for you. Of course, this is a play on words where David already has a house to live in. This is the house of the, uh, the family dynasty that is going to go on forever. And hopefully, as you see, as we read through there, God already recounting what all he's done for David and how he has raised him up and made him king. So we see this has already been a fairly one-sided thing. God has been doing this and been working in his life the whole time. So now we're going to look at where he's going ahead with this house he's going to build for him. And, uh, <clears throat> and he has this promise that David's going to have a son, the son is going to build him a house, and that his kingdom is going to go on forever. Any ideas who he might be talking about? If you're thinking it's Jesus, you're skipping too far ahead. <laughs> he's actually talking about Solomon. David is going to have a son named Solomon, and Solomon is going to build a temple. And, uh, and then it says, you know, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogging, floggings inflicted by human hands. And yet, my love for him will continue. And the kingdom is not going to be taken away, like it was with Saul, from that family. Here's what happened. As we move forward then in history, is Solomon does build a house. Builds a temple for God. Magnificent temple. And sure enough, God's presence comes and dwells in the midst of this temple as a concession for us, not because he needs a house. And then, Solomon does turn away. He does wrong. The kingdom is torn from him and his family as a whole. And yet, because of the covenant that God has made with David right here, God says, but the whole thing is not going to be torn away. So they keep part of the kingdom in that family. And then, years go by, and it seems like maybe God has forgotten his promise. Because all the people end up in exile in Babylon. And what's happened to the kingdom? What's happened to God's promise? And so this passage that we're just reading here, this Second Samuel 7, is one of the most referred to passages in all of the Bible. When you go through... Um, it's picked up in the Psalms, it's picked up in the Prophets, it's picked up throughout the New Testament, and it's constantly this, wait a second. God made a promise, and we know that God is faithful, and yet we're not seeing it. So what is going on? And this might be where 
starts tying in with our own lives. Wait a second. God has made a promise. We're not seeing it happen. What is going on? Does this mean that God is not faithful, or is there something we're missing? Now, if you had jumped ahead earlier and said, Jesus, this is the part where you're right. Because while this prophecy did initially, because it was talking about Solomon, it was also definitely pointing forward to Jesus. And that's something that gets picked up throughout the New Testament. As you see in the Psalms and the prophets, it's people saying, what is going on? Why, why are we not seeing the promise fulfilled? And then, in the New Testament, Jesus shows up. And all these New Testament authors start saying, hey, everybody, remember that promise we weren't seeing fulfilled? Here it is. And this is why the New Testament opens, by the way. The book of Matthew opens connecting Jesus to David as a part of that. I mean, connecting him to Abraham all the way back, going through all the promises that God has made throughout, but saying this Jesus that was born is actually in that line of David. In other words, this promise that there's going to be this kingdom that is always a part of this family is answered in Jesus. And so when we had missed it for all those generations and said, where's the king? Where's the king? Where's the king? God was still working through, behind the scenes, through these families, generation after generation after generation after generation until the time had fully come. For Jesus to be born, for him to be the king, for him to build a very different kind of temple, for Jesus, not a building, but for Jesus to be the place where heaven and earth meet. And for Jesus to then be the one who calls all people to himself as the place where, he, where they meet God, and also then to begin to build a kingdom of priests, to build a temple out of people. Not out of stones, but of living stones, as Peter says. Or as we read in Ephesians, uh, oh, wrong bookmark. As we read in Ephesians, in him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Talking about us. And in him, you too, you plural, too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So when we look back at this prophet, this prophecy given to David, and we say, well, what in the world does this have to do with us? Us, being built together as a temple where God lives by his spirit is one of the things that God had in mind when he was talking to David all those many, 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 many years ago. That Jesus being the one who would be that cornerstone of the real temple. That is what God had in mind all those years ago. And that we would be the church. The new temple in Jesus. One of the other things that comes through really strongly in this, and what I'm getting ready to say, it's one of those those things for some people, it's going to seem absolutely common sense. For others, it's going to require a great deal of struggle. (laughs) And I know that because I've been on both sides and everywhere in between. 
And that is this. God does not need you. God does not need you. He doesn't need us to do what it is that he's going to do. And this is where I say, some of you are going, of course not. He's God. And others of you are like, whoa, 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 hold on now. <laughs> but aren't there things that he's told us to do, and doesn't he need us to do those things? And uh, this is where I find this particular passage very helpful. David says, I'm going to, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to do this thing for you. And that really makes sense, especially in David's culture. This is what the idols had. And God is constantly revealing who he is in contrast to the idols. And so, for the idols, they, you got to build them a house. You have to. They have to live somewhere, right? So build them a house. You put their statue in there. They've got to eat, so you make sacrifices because that's how they get their food. And so they need people to do these things for them. And it's when you do the things that they need, then they will do good things back to you. And God says, that's not who I am. I am not one of the false gods that people have been worshiping. I'm not one of these idols. I am the one true and living God. And I don't need anything. He is self-existent, self-sustaining, has no need of us. But here's the amazing thing. Even though he doesn't need us to do things, to do it all without us, he loves us. And he chooses us. And he uses us for our good. And that's one of the amazing things. I had a talk with a uh, mom of one year, one-year-old recently and started walking and just the the changes that that's brought in, in their life, to have a one-year-old running all over the place. And she's like, what was I thinking, teaching him to walk? And it reminded me, my grandpa always used to say, spend the first two years of a child's life teaching them to walk and talk, and the next 16 years telling them to sit down and shut up. <laughs> he was a humorous fellow who wasn't really that pessimistic about parenting, but... <laughs> But it makes the point that when you're teaching your children to walk and to talk and to do these things that they were created to do, it carries with it, of course, not only the, uh, I mean, now they can walk alongside you and they can learn, they can do more and more and grow up in that, or they can use those same words and those same legs to scream and run away. If we approach the things that God has told us to do as idol worshipers and say, well, if we do this, then God will owe me something. Then we'll have, we can't ever put God in our debt. There's nothing we can do, and he doesn't need us to do those things anyway. We will see all of it, our whole relationship with him, as what else do I have to do to make this guy happy? I mean, come on. If we see it, though, as he doesn't need us to do any of it. But he loves us, and he has chosen to use us for our own good. Then it's not something that we have to do. It's something we get to do. And it's something that as we get to do that, we not only are getting to join him in what he's doing, but we're being formed more and more into who he made us to be. And we're getting to kind of have that apprentice relationship with him. Where we're learning from the master, from our creator, from our own Heavenly Father. And so, like I say, this particular passage, really helpful in that, where uh, David says, all right, 
figured all this out. I know what, what needs to happen here. I need to build you a house. And God says, no, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, don't worry about the house. I'll get that later. I'll take care of that. <laughs> you don't worry about it. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. And then he just lists off. Here's what I've done, and here's what I'm doing, and here's what I'm going to do. A lot of times preachers don't like to preach this message because they're afraid that it's going to lead people to not want to do anything. These will be like, oh, well, if God doesn't need it, then go back to what I was doing before. <laughs> if that's the attitude, then we have, I've not made this clear. <laughs> Our focus should be not on what we can do for God, but on what he's doing, who he's created us to be. And, and then live in light of that. Who is he? What does he promise? The times where he's made promises, we say, I don't see it fulfilled. Can we still trust him? Of course we can. We've seen that. Just point out one other. I told you this passage gets picked up everywhere. It goes all the way to the book of Revelation. Actually, it goes all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. I'll just pick up one in the middle uh, in chapter 5, John is looking at the worship in the heavenly throne room. And he says, uh, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And it goes on, you should read the whole thing. Anyway, but he's described, even in this scene, as the lion of Judah and the root of David. The root seems strange. Wouldn't it be branch? He's the root of David. Because not only is he descended from him, he's also the source even of David. He was the source of the reason that David is able to be king is because Jesus is the real king. Does that make sense? This is why he is the root of David. And this is how he's described. He is the one who is worthy. Jesus, the true king. And this is the reason why, if, if we get that right, if we have Jesus as the root, then all the things that we do fit into what we're supposed to be doing and who we're supposed to be becoming and who we're actually representing. If we get that wrong and we think that we're the root and we're sustaining him, then everything we do, no matter what words we put on it or how we try to dress it up, we're not representing him. We're not doing it out of his strength. And we're distorting who we were supposed to be and who we're supposed to become and who we're representing. So, dream our dreams. God, I want to do this for you. But then listen, his ways may not be our ways. What's he actually calling us to do? And what is he doing? And how can we be a part of that? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.